Welcome back to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Yes, they are my dear friends. Today we'll be talking about the craziness in crypto markets, a possible transitory tantrum, and later we'll be going off the tape in an interview with our CNBC friend, Carter Braxton Worth. We'll really get behind the charts from the best in the biz. Stick around. We got a great show for you. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. A lot happened this week. There's a lot to digest. But you know what? For me, the story of the week was crypto. We saw a huge move. I mean, at its peak, I think Bitcoin traded north of 65,000. We saw it trade basically with a 30,000 handle back up to 40,000. I want to know why it went down. I have some thoughts. But Dan, Nathan, what's going on here in the crypto? You're the crypto baller amongst us. Well, listen, you want to know the why, but you come to me with nothing. Okay, that is a quote from a movie that you will never get, Guy Adami, because you haven't seen a new movie since the late 80s. Reservoir Dogs. No, not that. Okay, but here's the deal. I mean, you know, listen, we've been talking on this podcast since we launched it in mid-January about these pockets of unusually positive sentiment. I think, Danny, in the very first podcast that we did, you talked about the speculative fervor that we're seeing with all sorts of investors, whether it be through their Robinhood app, whether it be through their Coinbase app, whether it be through their DraftKings app. And one by one, we've seen a lot of these pockets of enthusiasm fall by the wayside in 2021. So here's the thing, man. I mean, think about how parabolic crypto has gone in the last couple of months. It just couldn't be sustainable. I think the thing that's really interesting, though, and Guy, you've talked about this on numerous occasions here, the leverage that is in the crypto market, specifically as it relates to retail that may not have diamond hands, okay? But there's obviously plenty of levers as it relates to institutions here. So what happened in the last 24, 48 hours? The retail, the FOMO buyers in the last few weeks, they just got taken to the absolute woodshed. And I guess if I was a massive crypto bull, I'd fear, much like other bubbles that burst, that you might have just lost a good chunk of the retail investor in crypto. Yeah, I would say that people say, oh, must cause this. Well, let's talk about why Elon Musk said that in the first place. My personal opinion, he was doing bidding for China days ahead. He's had a lot of issues in China with his business. Maybe he's trying to appease the regulators there, the government there. I'm not sure. But what happens two days later after he comes out with this whole Bitcoin nonsense is that China comes out and basically lays the wood down on cryptocurrency in general. So that was one. The second thing that's been going on is there's been a lot of talk in Washington. People always tend to know something's going to happen ahead of time there. So now you're seeing the Department of Treasury coming out, basically applying the anti-money laundering laws of anything over $10,000 needs to get recorded and reported to the Department of Treasury and the IRS. So that's another issue. And I think many people that own crypto own it in apps. They don't even know what they're tracking. They're in and out. They're in and out. They probably have massive capital gains that they don't think they ever have to pay. And then what happens? Whatever's left in there, they end up losing. So it's a double whammy. It's not much different than what you see in penny stocks and retail, certainly back to the dot-com era. And we talked about last week about if you take the whole crypto market and the people just kind of left the tech market, which we saw, what did they go into? They went into these altcoins. And now it's some of the stuff has evaporated. 
Could have come back, sure. But it was just speculation on speculation. And when people look back years from now, and I'm not saying this is going to happen to all the digital coins at all. I'm not saying that at all. I think these things are here to stay to some degree. But when you create like a Dogecoin and all of a sudden you just have 80 billion of value, where did that come from? You can't just make $80 billion appear. And I think when you start to see stories in the news about two sons that are now supporting their parents, paying them back for all the years because they bought Dogecoin or this banker leaving Goldman Sachs, because those are the type things like wake up, open your eyes. Yeah, it's interesting. At one point, I mean, Bitcoin was down as much as 30%, Ethereum as 20 that doggy coin or Doge or Dodge, whatever, fell 18%. But for me, the story that probably didn't get enough media coverage, I think we should talk about, were the outages. I mean, we made fun of Robinhood weeks ago. Let's talk about what happened here with Coinbase, with Binance, with Gemini. These things went down at a point where you don't want them. The worst possible time is when this happened. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because we feel like we look back in the last 10 years where online trading has really done the bulk of retail trading here. And we've had these instances on numerous occasions. And let me tell you something. I was texting with a lot of friends yesterday and looking at Twitter when these things were in a free fall. And when you look at the liquidations that you see in the major cryptos over the last, let's just say, this year, and we've seen plenty of them, they go down in a straight line, like 10, 15%. And if you have dry powder, and that's what you're waiting for, and you can't get in there and buy, you start to feel like this is a really rigged game. Now, here's the big irony of this. It's one thing if it's Robin Hood. It's another thing if it's Schwab, that sort of thing. But when you have Coinbase or Gemini or any of these other on-ramps to crypto and you're a retail investor, part of the allure is that it is this decentralized crypto token that no one has control over. You're trying to solve for your financial freedom. And then all of a sudden, you realize that you are literally once again in the hands of the guys pulling the strings. And it's usually the guys. So, you know, it's a real bummer because I know a lot of people who tried to buy some stuff in the hole, they were waiting for a pullback. And then you realize you can't. I mean, maybe there's going to be another opportunity to do it, but I don't think Coinbase is going to actually face a huge amount of criticism, not like the way that Robinhood did back in January. Well, the U.S. government still trying to figure out how to regulate these, if you want to call them exchanges, lack of exchanges. The problem has always been with this. There's no recourse. Who are you calling if you're on one of these off-ramp or on-ramp exchanges that you want to call it, damn, whatever? Who are you going to call? There's no agency to file a complaint with. There's nothing. And so there is manipulation going on in some of these altcoins that we've never heard of, of the, of the thousands that are out there that are completely being manipulated by those wallets out there that own 34% of one coin, own probably 60% of another. There's no regulation on it. So the government's going to be playing catch up on this for a while, but unfortunately, it's going to be too late for a lot of people. And I just want to say, I watched that story on 60 Minutes on UFOs and aliens and everything's starting to finally make sense to me here a bit because there was one quote this week from Kathy Wood, which said that the Bitcoin correction improves the odds for crypto ETF approval. I can't even understand that comment. Maybe that came from outer space. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But I think things like this actually set those back in time because they're not going to approve anything until they figure out a better way to regulate this at all. And you're right, Dan. The irony is that in order to really make this efficient, you kind of need the government involved. You, you want safe protections. But the whole concept of this coins is that you don't want the government involved at all. That's right. It's funny, though, Danny, you just mentioned the government is going to be very focused, the IRS in particular, about getting capital gains tax on these. You know, one of the biggest themes, one of the reasons why Ethereum had been outperforming Bitcoin so dramatically was that all the stuff that's been built on the Ethereum 
Ethereum network. And we've seen DeFi, decentralized finance is a big buzzword right now. And you're seeing billions and billions and billions of dollars invested in these tokens and these protocols. Well, there's decentralized exchanges also, and there's a lot of crypto being traded. You think that they can't regulate Coinbase and Binance and this sort of thing? Wait until you start reading about decentralized exchanges here. So there's a lot of activity going on away from the centralized platforms also. So, I mean, listen, ultimately, this conversation that Bitcoin can't be regulated, that it's this global, immutable, distributed ledger, well, you certainly can regulate the companies that are interacting with it. And, you know, you talked about Musk before and the about face, and you had a pretty hot take, Danny. No one uh, even said anything. You thought that maybe he was appeasing the Chinese, that sort of thing, given his issues with China as it relates to Tesla. So it's interesting, Danny. You know, if you had told me a few weeks ago, if you said, Guy, the week of whatever, Bitcoin's going to trade 31,000. And then you said, where is the Dow Jones? What's going to happen to the Dow Jones, the S&P 500? I would have said, Danny, unequivocally, the S&P is down, I don't know, 150 handles. Dow Jones is down, give or take 1,300 points. And we saw pretty much exactly the opposite. Not exactly the opposite, but Tom Lee came out and basically said, look, Bitcoin versus the markets. VIX really didn't move all that much. You know, maybe is Bitcoin a leading indicator? Who knows? It's a fascinating conversation. I think there's huge correlation. I think it's the same type of people in the cryptos or in some of these high-flying tech names. But you know what? I would have been dead wrong if I had that information. I'm just curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, I think some of these tech stocks that had sold off in previous weeks probably didn't leave the market entirely they went into crypto, into these altcoins. So it's a double whammy, selling those tech stocks at a loss that lost their momentum and then coming in this market. So I think a lot of those people were probably already out of the market. Certainly it limits the buying power, but it is really amazing how resilient the market, the broad markets are with the money, again, staying in equities. And so whatever's causing that, you know, people still chasing these type of returns because the returns are really not out there elsewhere. So maybe money leaves crypto, maybe people are overweighted a little bit and comes back into the stock market, but it's certainly not leaving on the whole, that's for sure. It's pretty fascinating, though, when you think about the entire at the highs just recently, the entire market cap for the crypto space was that of Apple at its recent highs. You know, so we're spending a lot of time talking about what I would just say is a pocket of speculation, because, yes, of course, and I think, Danny, you just said it. We know that there is going to be clear winners as it relates that are going to be around five, 10 years from now. They're going to have much bigger market caps, that sort of thing. But the space in general is not particularly big. That being said, I think that if some of the bull theses for the space, specifically as it relates to what's being built on the Ethereum network, as it relates to things like DeFi, decentralized finance, it has the potential to be billions and billions and billions of disruption to some existing incumbents. And I think that's really a big part of this story. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of crackdowns we get, whether it be from a tax standpoint or other regulatory standpoint or certain geographic standpoints, as you just mentioned, Danny, with China. But it sounds like the investment in the protocols will continue, we might see some of these shit coins go away, no. but we may see a lot, a lot of people doubling down a little bit on those perceived winners. I want to say one other thing to kind of wrap this up. So the federal government came out and said they're actually looking at a digital currency. The U.S. government did. China has already done that before, we think for nefarious reasons, but the U.S. government has come out and said they're looking at that. Now, 
I don't think that's necessarily a positive for Bitcoin per se. Certainly the way that currency can move across the channels, it is. So there is blockchain applications for that. But I think that's a little bit misconstrued. I think the Fed's trying to figure out how they can kind of win-win and appease by using the technology that's like, we talked about this before, like T plus zero. Why are we taking T plus two and three days to settle any trades that are out there? Using it for things like that, being able to send stimulus checks directly, quickly into people's accounts. So that always comes at a cost and with some risk to it. But I think people may have misinterpreted that by what the U.S. government is doing. I'd love to get your thought on that, Dan. Yeah, and a lot of it is, I mean, listen, just so you know, all of our money is pretty digital right now. I don't have any in my home. I don't have anything in my back pocket, right? And so when you think about some of these, they're really digital stable coins to represent what the current currency is of each of these countries. So they really shouldn't be viewed as the same as, let's say, a store of value. It would be like comparing a dollar to a dollar's worth of gold, if you will, if that makes any sense. No, it's interesting. So, and obviously, it, for me, what what would be on the tape unless I railed against the Fed again? But listen, Dan, Nathan, you did something fascinating. You know, you coined MAGA probably a year before President Trump coined MAGA in terms of the stocks, and then you coined F MAGA. But you also coined something over the last week and a half that's absolutely going to stick. Do you know what that is? I think we're calling it the transitory tantrum, if you think back to 2013. Yeah, you coined that. You might be right. Maybe it is a transitory t- Who knows? Who knows? But I will tell you this, Dan. I'm going to tell you right now that Federal Reserve, what do they put out? Those balloons out, those trial balloons just to see. And there might be a bit of a taper tantrum this summer, Dan Nathan. What are your thoughts about them apples? So I think you're talking about the Fed minutes, the April minutes here. And they were just saying that some of the officials uh, said it might be appropriate at some point to consider tapering asset purchases in the economy shows rapid progress, according to the meeting minutes. So that came out this week. It's obviously a little bit of backward looking. I use the expression transitory tantrum because I'm thinking back to 2013, right? So the Fed started floating some trial balloons back then that they were going to start tapering asset purchases. We know that at that point, we had been in a zero interest rate policy for over four years. And that was obviously to assist in the recovery of the global financial crisis. But I feel like what's different this time around, and I know I just triggered Guy and Danny with that expression here, is that what all of that monetary and all that fiscal stimulus was in a response to was just one of the weirdest situations our country has been in, and and let alone every country on this planet over the last hundred years. If you think about the health crisis, the economic crisis. So they kind of did what they needed to do at the time to stave off a global depression. And listen, I get it. I think what they're doing now by continuing to buy bonds and, and other risk assets the way they're doing doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But the disruption to supply chains, that's one of the reasons why when we look around here and we're talking about inflation, it's just a weird situation. I suspect it's going to balance itself out. We're going to actually have some of these massive supply shortages that are going to abate. We're going to see all of that stimmy and that consumer balance sheet that's been saved up because people haven't been able to do anything other than to buy crypto. I think we're going to see it all balance out. I think we're going to look back and say, ah, you know what? We're going to be back to about 2% inflation. Rates are back to those 2% or so. I know both of you guys think that. That's where we're going, at least in the 10-year. And we're like, yeah, this is where we were before. This is where we're going to be after. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about all of that stimulus, okay, how did, this is one of the things that we talked about last week when Stan Druckenmiller said globally about $30 trillion, we can't have rates go up too meaningfully because how do you service all of that debt? So 
I think it goes back to pre-pandemic levels where we were worried about the machines taking all the jobs and considering what UBI looks like. I would say this, the Fed minutes obviously were written on April 28th. Since that moment when they were concerned, certainly there was a jobs report that on the face of it looked bad. We talked about it last week, why it's not so bad. And then you had a massive CPI number, and then you had bad retail sales, and people were trading every point. When we first started doing the show, you guys made fun of me. I started talking about the dot plot and everything that's moving. That's really what drives the futures markets for Fed fund futures are driven there. June is the next one. I don't know the exact date of that June meeting, but that's the quote next dot plot. So that's what I think we're in a little bit of a lull here until that gears up because now people are attuned to it. They are not from our show, but just in general from what the March looked like. So I think, Dan, you might be right for a little while, see how things play out. But listen, we all know it's so absurd when you look at the earnings numbers that are coming out from companies and how the economy is doing that we're still buying $120 billion of bonds every month. It's just not necessary. It's up $7.8 trillion now on the balance sheet. I'm not going to rant here against the Fed. Just be practical and take a step back. Is the market that fragile that it can't handle a taper? It's ridiculous. Listen, Danny, you know I agree with you 100%. I mean, you see some of these retail numbers, some of these retail earnings. Forget about the stock performances on the back end. You know, we can talk about Home Depot, we can talk about Kohl's, but the reports themselves have been staggering. So you have to wonder, you know, what is the Federal Reserve looking at that I'm not looking at? And quite frankly, we're at a point now, just my opinion, I'm not sure the market knows what it wants. Does the market want higher inflation, lower inflation? Does it want 10-year yields just basically to stop at 1.65%? Does it want the U.S. dollar to go higher, lower? I'm of the belief that U.S. dollar is about to get crushed, and we'll see what happens if it gets below that 88 level in the DXY. I think it's going to be potentially, and I'll use the word, catastrophic to the market. A lot of people will say, you know what? A weaker dollar is going to be extraordinarily bullish for equities. We shall see, Danny. But, you know, in my opinion, talk about overstaying your welcome. I've never been one of those people at those parties, but I know them and they all suck. So maybe they're overstaying their welcome. They have this dual mandate, stable prices, it's full employment. They're going for that last five, 10 million, however you want to measure it, unemployed here. I get it. Overstaying their welcome. Maybe it's more on the asset purchase side than the rate side. But when you think about this, what is the Fed looking at? You just said they're looking at something different than you are. They know. Look at all these states that are ending these expanded unemployment benefits, that sort of thing. There's plenty of this stimulus that's going to be rolling off, per se. And Danny just mentioned that jobs number in April. We saw that miss in retail sales last week. We saw that housing starts number that was really disappointing this week. I mean, we might have reached the V, the right side of the V. We might be back there. And that's kind of what I'm saying. I think we're going to look back at 2021 and we're like, oh, yeah, the transitory tantrum, because everything's going to go right back to where we were pre-pandemic. Now, and listen, Dan, you're probably going to wind up being right, but I'm going to stick to my guns on this one. And one of the things we're going to stick to our guns with is rip off the tape because we've done it now for a couple of weeks and the people are clamoring for it. I don't know how to spell that, but I know that they want it. So Dan Moses, do your thing, brother. You're not going to like this one, guy, because you're a Godfather fan. Everyone hated Fredo for what he did to Michael. I get it. I'm going to talk about the whistleblower program that the SEC has and the CFTC have. So don't get mad at me about this. I'm just telling you, I'm seeing a lot more things come across the tape. So I started to look back into this thing. So this thing emanated out of the global financial crisis. It came out of Dodd-Frank. It was part of that. So it's the SEC whistleblower program. There's been other whistleblower programs in the past in the government that dealt more with like OSHA violations and things like that. But this really started in 2012 is when kind of the first fines came out. So I went back and looked. In the last month, there's been $77 million in whistleblower, if you want to call them 
awards that have been paid out for freighting on people, as you as you want to say, guy. So this thing's getting a lot of traction. Let me just put this in perspective. It has totaled over nine hundred million dollars since inception, but seventy-seven million in the last month. And in October two thousand twenty alone, there was an award for one hundred fourteen million dollars. So it's anonymous. You can't see exactly what each of these whistleblower awards are attached to, whether it's like a Monsanto claim or whatever. You could probably put the puzzle together. But this thing is growing. And let me tell you a little bit how it works. You don't even have to be an employee at a company to whistleblow. You can just present evidence through a letter to the SEC, which says, I believe this company is doing the following, whether it's somewhere in their production line, whether it's somewhere in how they report to investors, whatever it might be. And if they don't have it on file yet and you they open up an investigation and it amounts to something, you get an award worth 10 to 30 percent. People may say, oh, why would you do that? Well, listen, you can protect employees at companies. You can protect investors in companies. If you want to take a short seller's report, if it wasn't really out there before and see what's in there, there's probably a whistleblower case in that. So What's really interesting now, though, is they added crypto a couple years ago, kind of the crypto language into the whistleblower program, both at the CFTC and the SEC. And you're actually starting to see awards go for crypto whistleblowing. I believe that's going to be a huge prevalent thing that we're going to see over the next several months and years as it relates, certainly it relates to crypto. The last thing I'll say is this. We've had hundreds of million dollars in awards in, in the last year, whistleblower. This is a bull market. What's going to happen when the tide goes out? Just imagine how big this is going to be. So I think this is underappreciated. I'm not telling everyone to go out there and make a case and write a letter to the SEC if they necessarily see something, but there's a huge opportunity here. And I think it's going to create, because they're advertising it so much more, a lot more scrutiny on companies that may be misbehaving either in the course of doing business or how they report their information to the investment world. So I wanted to harp on that. I don't think it's getting enough attention. No, and I love what you did there. But I'm going to take umbrage again, another word that I don't know how to spell, but I'm going to take it regardless because you mentioned Fredo. First of all, Fredo wasn't a whistleblower. He turned against the family. Much different, as you know, but I like what you tried to do there, but it's incumbent upon me to point these things out. And listen, I'm all for whistleblowing. If you work on an assembly line and you see shoddy preparation of a jet engine or in a healthcare facility, if you see poor fabrication of drugs and stuff, I'm all for that. But don't bring Fredo in here, the great John (laughs) Cazal, and tarnish the name of what was a great Not a great movie. The greatest movie of all time, Danny Moses. Really knew that you would love that. And I'll say it again. 2020, year of COVID, they processed more whistleblower claims in history. I mean, that's with short staff with not a ton of information. So I think this is coming. And you mentioned like aircraft parts and things. When you see a large SEC settlement or fine by a company, go look like six months later if you get some whistleblower announcement at the same time. So you can piece these things together, but I think it's worth watching. There actually are hedge funds now set up to, to actually do this, to file whistleblower claims, by the way. Danny, you know I love you. And the fact that you brought Fredo in makes me love you even more, even if it was somewhat out of context. But when we come back, a great interview with Carter Worth. Carter Braxtonworth is the chief of technical analysis at Cornerstone Macro and a co-host of Options Action on CNBC. CBW has previously worked at Oppenheimer, DLJ, also known as Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genrette, as well as Stern AG. Carter, it is a pleasure to have you go off the tape with us. Carter Worth, I got to tell you something. It's amazing to have you. I met you many, many years ago. You showed up on Fast Money. You sat on the desk, and I'm like, who is this cat? I'm like, he is right off of like the Mayflower or something. But there is a backstory 
and I want to hear it. Is it true? And be honest here with our <laughs> listeners. Did you have ancestors that signed the Declaration of Independence or something? Give it to me, CBW. Well, I got my middle name because of that, and it is true. I'm not sure it helps you pick the right charts, but here's the story. My middle name, Braxton, my mother, that's my grandfather on my maternal side, his last name, he was Carter Braxton. And what you might call the greatest IPO of all time, 1776, <laughs> 56 people got together and they told the King of England to shove it. Yeah, they did. It was pretty dangerous. The penalty for uh, treason was you got quartered. So they tie all four limbs and four horses start walking in opposite directions. That's nice. But anyway, it worked out. So here we have now United States of America. So again, one of the 56 people to sign that document, sending it over to the king, said, come and fight us if you want, was Carter Braxton from Virginia. They said, basically, they said, eat shit. And I saw the Braveheart <laughs> episode where they tried to quarter Mel Gibson. And I also know the Led Zeppelin song, No Quarter. And the only Braxtons I knew prior to you was Jim Braxton, who I know Danny Moses might be familiar with. He played fullback for the Bills. He was in that O.J. Simpson backfield. And obviously the great Tony Braxton, who I can't tell you anything about. But anyway, CBW, honest, beautiful to have you here. Thanks for that bit of history. I'll go with the Mayflower. You go with the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> it's all good. We didn't meet in 1776, but we did meet in the in the early 2000s at Oppenheimer. I think we overlapped briefly. But then we did. once I went on to the buy side, you were certainly our favorite analyst slash technician that came in. And the first question I asked you when I met you is similar to something about Mary, about the seven-minute abs, why not six-minute abs? Your obsession with the 150-day moving average as opposed to the 200, which I thought was a great change and you know a little bit different than everybody else. Can you just talk about how that originated and why the 150? Sure. It's fascinating. And just everyday instances, look at Ethereum. I guess where Ethereum stopped just a day ago to the penny. When that hedge fund that just blew up, the things like Viacom, they stopped to the penny. And so it's sort of a, a catchphrase, a little bit of a part of my work that I've used when presenting it. But the origin, it really, I inherited it from a teacher and mentor who taught me the business. But what we did early on was do a lot of work on the subject. And it, it really gets down to this. What is the point of a moving average? And the reality is, if you look back in the history of charting, there were no moving averages originally. Why? Because how do you get a moving average? We'd have to wait for the close today in GE, let's say $15, 10 cents. And then we would have to take a price from 150 days ago and remove it and add the new one, then add all 150 days, all of them together, then plot the moving average. That would take hours. And then we draw it with a line. So without a computer, you really can't have a moving average, right? It's a calculation that just takes too much time. But what is the point of it? The point of it is it's basically a trend line. So think about an actual trend line. You take a ruler and you draw trend lines or an automated trend line. The moving average is an automated trend line. And over time, what we found is the one that has the highest hit rate, the highest efficacy is the 150 moving average. And that is the answer. All right, Carter, scientific there. So Carter, when I started in the business 25 years ago, I worked at a hedge fund. It was a bunch of kind of chamoli traders there. But one day, the head of the fund brought on some guy. He was a technician, and he was just producing charts all day long. And the head of the fund called him an elf. Was that actually a real name for technicians back then? And then the other part of this question is, is that when did technical analysis become mainstream? You know, you just threw out a 150-day moving average, and all of our listeners of this podcast, 
podcast who are familiar with markets, who trade markets, invest in markets, they're familiar with that lingo. But that was not the case 25 years ago. And, and how did it break through? That's correct. I can put it in the context of my own experience and let's say how I got in the business, but why once in the business, I got into technical analysis and pursued it and really dedicated my life to it. And so first question, the elves. Rukeyser had his program going back before any media, business or market media, as you know, Wall Street Week, and he had his elves on there. Now, I'm not, in my own instance, remembering any instance where the technician was designated or called an elf, but that certainly was something that Rukeyser used in terms of his people he relied on when they voted for bull or bear. In any event, the interesting thing about technical analysis, and I think it's important to discuss this, is it's the oldest single way to go about identifying security selection. Think about it. So CAPM, I mean, literally the entire, every CFA and MBA and CPA and the notion that you can study a company, its truck routes, its competitors, its products, its future, its financials. And then you can, based on an unknown, the future earnings three years out, you can discount that based on interest rate that you, who the hell knows, and then you can assign a price target. I mean, talk about something that's both impossible, but also ego-filled. I didn't like that. I started as a fundamental analysis and I hated it. I was doing steel companies. I was doing financials. And that's what I started saying, wait a minute, this is a joke. And I'll give you some examples of that. Before Reg FD, you could talk to the companies and they'd kind of guide you. So I'd be working on my numbers for the quarter. Let's say I was coming up with $1.98. And I'm on with IR and they're saying, we're thinking it's more like low twos. Well, guess what you could do? You had four levers you could pull. So first of all, you had your revenue line. You're just extrapolating anyway. So I've got 7% growth in there. I'll put it to 7.2. And now my buck 90 just jumped to buck 95. And then I was like, you know, gross margins. All right. Well, I mean, come on. Who's to say what cost of goods sold? I've got this at at 17%. Let's move it to 17.5. And all of a sudden, my EPS went up another three cents. And then, of course, tax rate. My God, you're never quite sure. And I moved it down a little bit. And then shares outstanding. And before I know it, I could get any number I wanted. And that just bothered me. I didn't like it. In fact, but guess what we just saw? What did we just see? Amazon is covered by 54 analysts, which is to say you don't get that job working for a bulge, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, unless you're highly educated. So everyone's Harvard, Wharton, Stanford, Brown, Princeton, and then highly trained. Georgetown. Oh yeah, two Georgetown. That's right. Thank you. And so highly educated and then highly trained, which is they have certifications that, uh, and then they've applied all that knowledge. They've studied Amazon, which means they've studied eBay and they've studied Baba and they've studied consumer trends and spending trends. And they've studied disposal income and who's getting COVID checks. And these collective people, 52 of them, came up with an earnings estimate of $9.70, just like what I used to do. And guess what Amazon comes out at? $15.53. Like, what? What is that? That's Meaning it's just bad math. The whole thing is bad math, and it was never good math. Uh, real math is what keeps the Brooklyn Bridge standing. It's the math of the engineer, right? It would keep the Boeing planes flying. It's the aerospace. Wall Street math is a pretend thing, and it's held out as being so officious. My estimate, my price target. Oh, please. So I hated it. I literally was going to go, I got out the LSA book. I was going to do doctor, lawyer, anything. And I ran into this teacher mentor at DLJ who was in the sunset of his career. He said, come over here. Let me show you a few things. And I was struck on the spot. I said, my gosh, this is not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than that other nonsense. So you got keys to the kingdom there, but it's really (laughs) funny. There is a selection bias of all 
institutions that if they love a stock and you don't agree with them, they'll tell you you're wrong. We used to have the, when you would come into our office and it was Steve Eisman, Porter Vinny and myself, we each had a list and we kind of knew where it was going to go, but we would throw it out there and we would say, Carter, are you sure? You're like, pair of twos, man. Are you sure that's not bullish to bearish reversal? Are you sure that's not a bear? Yeah, you guys are always trying to tip the scales, influence the outcome. So my question is, I've always thought of a chart as a map of behavioral finance. And I always think about it, if retail is very prevalent in the market like it is today, it probably works better than it ever has. And we're going to talk about stocks and things later, but would you agree that it's not hard to figure out, at least in your head, that people that say, oh, if I get my money back, I'm going to sell it. Okay. Well, we know it. Can you talk about that a little bit? It's where levels are and where supply, where where your cost base is. But if you take it back just one step further, what is tenorized? First of all, the phrase itself is something that is new. It was always just called charting, which means you're plotting pictorial representation of price. And then people have always tried to, you know, it's the nature of, it's not a stewardess, they call it a flight attendant. That's fine. Or it's not a teller at the bank, it's a financial advisor. We're always trying to change the language to make it sound more sort of okay. There's nothing wrong with just being what it is. It Charting is simply taking price and putting it on paper. But before that, think about what its concept and what it really is. And this is what it is, in my estimation. Try this exercise. Well, let me give you two. You are sitting as a checkout person in a general merchandise store. And the first person comes along, just whatever, has a gallon of milk, dish towels, I don't know, phone adapter and some magazines. And you check them out. The next guy comes along, he's got cat food, cat litter, a box fan, and maybe some Captain Crunch. Then another woman comes along. She's got two pairs of jeans, 10 pack of socks, and a box fan. And then another guy comes along, garden hose and some potting soil and a box fan. Then a guy comes along with a blender and a desk fan. And then a guy comes along with three box fans. Now, if we were sitting inside, we can't see the weather. What do we know? Box fan, fan, fan. It's hot out. Technical analysis is simply watching what's going on. And it's not trying to presuppose, I think I know the weather is hot. It's looking at what's coming across the register. And so what were tape readers? That's what technology, the original tape readers, you don't even need a pictorial representation. Think about it. They would have the ticker tape come out and I'll do that same exercise that I just did. Try this. So we're watching the ticker tape and this is what's going along the bottom. Microsoft, Alcoa, Coke, CAD, Cisco, CAD, IBM, CAD, Plug Power, Intel, Boeing, CAD, DuPont, CAD, Walmart, Pfizer, CAD, 3M, CAD, CAT, Disney, Amgen, CAT, Unipit, CAT, CAT. Something's going on with CAT. It's no different than why are all these box fans? So what the technician is doing, he's making an inference. He's saying, I don't want to know the fundamentals. I want to go with the facts. And the facts are trying not to predict the future, but say, look at where the money is moving. I love this box. I don't even know what a freaking box fan is, but you're throwing box fans at me. I mean, everything about you, I love. And I mean that sincerely. When you No, no, but do you understand that? No, hold on. No, guy, it's important. It's important. You get that, right? No, I, of course, I understand it. Come on, I get it. Of course you do, right? And so that's the point. I'm breaking your horns. Okay, right. No, but here you go. So a couple things, because I just get a kick out of it. First of all, you know I love you, number one. Number two, I love when you're you're speaking and then mid-sentence you'll say yes. Can you just sort of educate me as that whole <laughs> you know, yes in the middle of the statement? Because it's brilliant. It's trying to make sure the person's listening and also make sure their brain is still operating. Right. You know, yes. It's like, are you there? Yes. Are you with me? And or are we, are we good here so far? Because otherwise we got to start over. It's so <laughs> it's good. It's so <laughs> effing good. And it's such 
I can't do that, but you can do it, and it's you cannot, brilliant. guy. No, you I cannot can't do it. But let me ask you this, Carter, because a lot of people ask me this, and I don't know if it even matters, but do charts work because everybody's looking at the same trend line, the same support level, resistance level, or vice versa? But does that even matter? No, it doesn't matter. It's interesting. So pre-SEC, when there were syndicates, people would bully the market. They'd get together and collude. People said, well, the stock charts work because these big players move the stocks. They, they push in and they try to build it up and then they let the shares out to the public. And then in the 70s, when mutual funds came here, they, oh, that's what it is. It's self-fulfilling. It's these big mutual funds, they drive the thing up. And then they said about hedge funds. And then they said about quant. The truth is the patterns keep repeating. We see these bearish to bullish reversals, breakouts. They've been going on for 150 years. A stock gets to a former high and then it backs and fills there for a reason because the people from the former high They want their money back. So it gets stuck at the high and it coils and builds. And then remember, what breaks out a chart is the fundamentals. It's an earnings. But the setup before earnings or some other event is very technical, right? So what is GARP? Think about GARP is. It's a stock in a good steady uptrend, yes, that is then given back a certain amount, 10, 12, 16, 18%, that is at a point where it's so cheap that the next player comes in or those who are selling higher come back. Guess where that typically ends up? At the 150 million average. So the chart is just a pictorial representation of a fundamental circumstance, right? A bearish to bullish reversal is value investing. A stock that's sold off to its 150 million average is GARP investing. A breakout is a stock that's been stuck at a range at 52 week highs for a year or more. It's multiple compression getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And then it breaks out on its earnings. So Carter, for nearly 10 years, you and I did options action together on CNBC. We did, we did. And I was the, as you would call it, the funny mental guy who knew enough about options to be a little dangerous. Our co-panelist, Mike Coe, knew a whole heck of a lot about options and, and certainly a lot about, as you call them, again, funny mentals. You would come in and you would just basically tell us if we were right or wrong on direction, kind of matter-of-factly, because you always had the cheat sheet, as you will, with your charts. But here's the thing. Are there other inputs other than the technicals that you weigh anywhere near than you do of your pictures that you draw, the lines that you draw, and that sort of thing? I don't have any other inputs. And that's the thing. That's the one thing you'll see. And this is nothing to do with competitors. Look, there are hundreds of charts, thousands of them, and I'm just one of many. But the one thing that is incontestable is that I'm pure at. I never once cast an eye over to the fundamentals. I'm like, wow, they have FDA approval coming. I shouldn't make that a buy. Or my gosh, they've got so much debt. You know, Macy's can't really turn around. If its chart is, is saying something, I go with that and never, ever compromise that judgment. You and I talk stocks, markets all the time. And I think that one of the things that our viewers or your clients who probably just hear you give the presentation on the technicals have probably no idea, like your depth of knowledge. And I think our listeners right now of this podcast are hearing it. You know a lot about markets. You know a lot about individual names. How does that not work its way into your bias? Oftentimes, if you say, okay, look at this wedge here, you know what I mean? It's going to break one way or another. Doesn't oftentimes, won't, won't it be maybe your bias about that company, about their service, about their management or something like that, or the history of the company kind of work its way into that charting? You would think, and yet it doesn't. I mean, I just don't. And so actually to guard against that, for instance, when I, so the, the routine is heavy on Sunday, right? I try to go through almost every stock in the Russell 3000 and it takes hours, six, seven hours. And even my wife's like, what is wrong with you? This is insane. But that's the discipline. And when I'm doing that, 
I'll tell you the process. I don't sort them by sector or say, let me go see how semis are looking because that's a bias, right? Or let me go see how small cap are looking. I just go A to Z like that. And I have the tickers removed. And so I'm just hitting enter, enter, chart, chart, chart. And when one jumps out, oh, look at that. That's right at former highs. Looks like I print it. And then I just keep going quickly. And the longer you're staring at it, the worse it's going to get. It's like a Rorschach. You've got to get an immediate impression. And then I look at the printer and I'm like, my God, I've got all these insurance stocks. That's, now we can make a judgment. So the good fundamental analysis is done by the bottom up. You don't say, oh, I think steel will be good. So let me go look at Nucor, Inland, and US Steel. No, you look at individual companies and then make inference about the group. And it's the same thing here. I'm just looking at a lot of charts and trying to then make a judgment about groupings. Wow, insurance looks good. Wow, semis don't look good. Wow, and that's it. That's the process. Carter, what, what you were describing before about Caterpillar and then <laughs> Microsoft, Caterpillar, it was Jesse Livermore, if I remember correctly, when he was really trading the ticker back then, you know, he would step into something that if he was right, he'd buy a little more and he would basically use technicals without producing all of these charts. But one of the things which I think you do harp on is volume. And I know that volume weighted average price comes into play in some capacity because what you do is because we've been in those meetings where and you are completely unbiased because you'll say something happened here where like, yeah, the company pre-announced a horrible quarter and the stock went up. You're like, well, yeah, I could have told you that it was bouncing off 150 day on a ton of volume. So you do use volume when you're telling a story. Right. And that's the number one thing. So I'm relying on four bits of data, high, low, close and volume. And that's it. And now the 150 average derived from price. So that's not an original piece of data. That's just smoothing out price. But volume is the number one thing. It literally is the number one thing. And so let's talk about that a little bit like the, the volume. Why are these so many fans coming across, right? Or why is it cat, cat, cat? And so just to put this into, not to sound sort of officious or academic, but, you know, the existentialist uh, from the Georgetown guys, right? Jean-Paul Sartre, who wrote Nausea. Rene Descartes. I can continue if you like. And that's right. And that's what I'm saying. And Camus and all that. The whole premise was that existence precedes essence. And in markets, volume precedes price. And so this is what you want. You want there to be unusual activity. And so what it is in the antithesis, it's one of the most flawed concepts in all economic theory is first mover advantage. Now, what is the first mover? The first mover is called MySpace. They're gone. Right now, it's Facebook. The first mover is that Xerox invented the mouse in 1981, trackball technology and pointing. They're gone. You don't want to be first. The first guy is the guy with arrow in his chest, dead. And, and you can use any example. Let me just give you a really pedestrian example, which I use with clients. Let's say the, uh, the four of us, we're trying to go out to the hottest nightclub tonight, the four of us. And we, I said, oh, it's so hard to get into. I got an idea. Or no, one of you guys said, I got an idea. We'll go at 5.15. 5.15, that sucks. You're sitting there by yourself. You don't want to be, you want to go after a few people come in, the drinks are starting to move, and you don't want to be there when it's a four-hour line. The point is you want certain things to be happening. You want the vine to be already picking up, and then you want to get involved. You don't want to be the first guy or the third guy. You want to be the 30th guy and not the 3,000th guy. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And the first guy for you playing our home games, one of the great first existentialists was Soren Kierkegaard of Copenhagen. There you go, yes. Denmark, and one of the first cryptocurrencies was the Bitcoin. And I got to tell you, CBW, you had a ridiculous call. And when I say ridiculous, I mean great call on Bitcoin over the last couple of weeks. Can you just walk us through that? where we were, where we are now, and what you see going forward. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've had a lot of excess in whether it's lumber or whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's plug power or anything, anything that gets steep and uncorrected at some point has mean reversion. Hard to time it, but we've got to try. And one thing we know about the behavior in Bitcoin is it was basically all last summer and into the fall trading at 10,000 and then on went on this tear, right? This six bagger up to 65. And then what? a week or two of stalling, and then another week, and it's been churning. And that kind of sort of stall, that rounding over, that sort of, wait a minute, doesn't seem like it's progressing, is often a harbinger of something that's not right. And sure enough, a little bit of luck, but a little bit of good timing, uh, Bitcoin has just collapsed, right? And it collapsed in a big way. But what's the incredible thing is how symmetrical the collapse was with other preceding declines. If you look at all actions since 2011, Right, there have been about a dozen or so 30% plus declines. Some have stopped at 35, 37. A couple have been 80 or 90 in 2014, for instance, uh, an 80 percenter, 2018. But the average decline is 56% of all of those 30 plus declines. It's 12, 13 of them. And that's exactly what we just sold off this time. The issue now, and just to put it, once you drop like that, especially the 30% plunge that we saw two days ago, you leave people trapped above. And that's the definition of overhead supply, right? If you buy something and you drop 30% from your cost basis, you become an interested seller. You're like, I got to get out of this. And so while you're not willing to punt it at the low, because then you've got two mistakes, right? It turns out to be a mistake to buy it higher. But if you punt it at the low and it comes back, then you're really dead. So what people do is say, I'll end on this thing if I have to. I will just stick with this. So Carter, what do you think the probability or the likelihood that we have a similar instance like we had in late 17, where we had that parabolic move, it just doubled Bitcoin from 10,000 to 20,000 into year end. And then we had a pretty sharp initial drop. And then we had a retest of that 20,000 level, but then it was just lights out here. And I know that you're not focused on fundamentals here, but the sentiment felt a little similar this year. Maybe it was a bit more focused in Ethereum. There was a bit of a, I think, a sentiment shift, if you will. But has anything changed meaningfully technically with this 50% peak to trough decline over the last month or so? Or do we have some problems here at that prior breakout level, which I think to your work is about 42,500? We've got problems at that former level, right? And, and also there's this, all of its other big declines there weren't as many people involved. There wasn't as much capital involved. Now there's real loss of money. And it's part of the most brilliant part of the market, right? It's where the real dreams are. And when you get hurt like that, it takes a long time to recover, a long time. So my thinking here is it's very asymmetrical, little to no upside and unknown, but prospectively plenty of downside. Okay, Carter. So that obviously is specific to Bitcoin and maybe some of the other larger cryptocurrencies, but there's been a lot of comparisons. I saw that, you know, Henry Blodgett yesterday when it was an absolute free fall tweeted something out. And here's a guy who had a front row seat for the dot com implosion. He said that at least during the dot com implosion, I'm paraphrasing right now, those companies were out there trying to earn revenues. And he's really talking about all these other shit coins and everything like that. What sort of comparisons do you see in the charts to the leaders, whether it was, Yahoo or AOL or Amazon in the late 90s, and then all the other ones that fell by the wayside, the shit coins of the late 90s, the pets.com and the globe.com and all that sort of crap. Are there any real comparisons to be made, at least from the charts? There are very certain comparisons. I think overall, there's no comparison at all. If you want to see the NASDAQ now, 
versus then the NASDAQ 100. In terms of evaluation, it's not even close now. Then interest rates, all of that stuff is really quite different. But in terms of these sort of lower quality high flyers, I think it's very analogous. You have stocks that are 10 and 20 baggers that ultimately end up not surviving. What we know, in fact, and you've seen these increasing the number of studies that the long-term 30, 40-year, 50-year periods, 90-plus uh, percent of all stocks underperform T-bills. That's a serious matter. And so right now, if you were to look at five years of stocks that are in the S&P right now, that were also in the S&P five years ago, it's basically only half of them. And of those, there are 20% have outperformed the market. The market is a survivor bias thing. So the whole notion of buying whole, just to be clear, right, is not really true. It's, yes, if you keep shedding your losers and sticking with just a few winners. But over time, most stocks just don't do well. And that is the reality. The difference between the dot-com, and I would say this, is when you're looking at something like an Amazon, at the time, I mean, they made no money. Of course, as we know, there was the, that joke that they were in the business of selling dollar bills for 90 cents. And it also dropped 98% from its peak to trough, Cisco 90. We're not going to have anything like that in the super cap stocks this time, because if we do, <laughs> you're talking about a nuclear winter. So Carter, speaking of stocks that were added to the S&P, and we did not plan this, I don't know what the result's going to be on this, but let's just pretend we're back in the good old days and the hedge fund office having beers after four o'clock. What does the company TSLA look like? I'm not going to tell you what it is. I don't think you've ever <laughs> yeah. heard of it. Don't worry about it. What does that look like from here? Well, and that has all the elements of it topping out formation, which is to say a strong and unrelenting advance that draws in more and more capital and more and more enthusiasm. And then what? It checks back to its 100 and feeling average, just as it did during the lows of March, but this time not holding, starting to stall and roll. And then you've got all these other things that were went along for the ride, speaking of which like ride, R-E-D-E, and Fisker, stocks that basically were priced up a hundredfold and then collapsed to zero or thereabouts. Tesla is overowned, overloved. And when a stock takes on or a manager, deity status, like it can do no harm. It's almost always a problem. Where's it going? Is it going to 400? Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of arbitrary, but I mean, I, I would say lower. Like, I, I just don't want to own Tesla here. Okay. 10-year yields, which I know you've talked about publicly. I just want to get any updated thoughts there. I know that's important to everyone since it's, it's the driver, it's the obsession. So It is. And it, and there are moments when things are very directional, and, and that is uh, we're trying to capitalize. And there are moments when things are fallow, like when buyers and sellers are matched off. And, and that is a moment here. I mean, there was a clear and sort of irrefutable turn in rates, and it's been marching in this beautiful uh, logarithmic channel literally bouncing off the top and the bottom like a pinball. Perfect. But now what we have is something different. We have something that is neither fish nor fowl. We've gotten to a price where, yes, it belongs here, so to speak. And I think basically call it one six, one seven. there is no difference. I think the real irony is, though, is that the behavior in the equity market. So think about the following. Forget about the high flyers that are all unwinding now from Pinterest to Etsy and Twilio and that kind of thing. But what I call the rested champions before the pandemic, interest rates were at 2%, plus or minus. And people were perfectly happy doing their three to five-year DCF work and giving dreamy multiples, dreamy to Adobe and Amazon and Apple and Netflix and Microsoft and Google, big marquee names. Now, 15 months later, 
Ten-year rates are at 163. Oh, no, and I can't give it a dreamy multiple anymore. Why? Oh, I just can't. What does that mean? It's all ridiculous. <laughs> if interest rates were at 3%, okay. Because, oh, it's the rate of change, the rate of change. What rate of change? Well below where we were before the pandemic hit. It applies to some of the high flyers. They don't belong where they were, but it does not apply to a stock like Apple or Amazon, in my opinion. Hey, CBW, let's just go back a second here before we get at it. Did you just say fallow? Is that, did I hear you correctly? You said fish or fowl. I heard that part, but you said fallow before. Isn't that like land that's been untilled land to let it restore its? Yes. Yes, it's untilled. That's a pilgrim word. <laughs> yeah, that's a pilgrim word. That makes my entire point. Only you would use fallow. Before we get out of here, CBW, how did they find you? When I say they, CNBC, because they go through hordes of people. And, you know, I know when when Fast Money came around, I mean, they went through 400 people before they picked me and a couple other guys. Still don't know how that happened. But, you know, just give us a quick 30 seconds as to how they discovered Carter Braxton Worth. I, too, uh, sort of was watching business TV. I, in the mid-80s, it was the nightly business report with Paul Tsonga. As a child, I did watch with my dad, the uh, Louis Rukeyser. And then there was this very new thing that was coming up. And obviously, it was Maria Bartiromo being the, the face of it. And I noticed there wasn't a lot, there were a lot of strategists on, and, but there weren't a lot of technicians. In any event, what I did was I have three brothers. I dispatched one of them and I took out a piece of paper, typed it up a memo. And I just joined up and I remember the time it was 02 or 03. And it was one pager, two, and it was blank from Carter Braxenworth. And the subject was Oppenheimer as a new chief market technician. I am he and I'd like to introduce myself. And then the one line or two other. And in the two, it put Mark Haynes, two, Marie Bartiromo, two, Dylan Radigan, two. And so... I had this brother, this is pretty big security. He drove over to Englewood and he got those memos into people's hands. Younger brother was a little bit of hotspot, just in high school at the time. I got a call and it was Lulu Chang, who was the producer of Closing Bell, as you know, and for Maria. And they put me on. And then they put me on a second time. And they put me on a third time. And then it morphed into other things, fast money and options action. Well, the rest is clearly history here. One thing that's pretty unique about this panel right here is that we all met each other through CNBC. I think we can all say that we're all pretty close friends for it too. So I just want to thank you, Carter. You know, I, I've enjoyed working with you. You and I obviously have had an awesome professional relationship doing options action for nearly a decade, which is crazy doing fast money most of that time also. So I thank you for your excellent work with the charts, but also your friendship. You're gracious. And, and, and the sentiment is likewise to each of you individually and as a team. I'm a big fan. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.